재미와 지식의 오디오라이프 팝빵 Sharing inspirational and motivational quotes and excerpts from great books to brighten up your Sunday. Life in Lines It is time for Life in Lines. Life in Lines is a new short segment we're introducing this season to take a closer look at excerpts and quotes from classics we've heard of but never actually read very closely. Each week, we'll look at different books following a monthly theme. And the theme for this month, celebrating the month of k e c h a n j a l or National Foundation Day, is the foundation myth of ancient Korean dynasties. Today's foundation myth is a song called Kujiga or Turtle Song. This folk song was part of Karakuki or Record of Karak Kingdom. And Karak was founded in the year 42 in present day Kimhae in Gyeongsangdo and was absorbed into Kaya, which in turn joined Silla in the 6th century. Turtle Song is a reference to the founder of Karak Kingdom, King Suro. Legend has it that the nine tribes and their nine leaders scattered around present-day Kimhae climbed to the top of Kujibong, or Turtle Peak, to ask for a leader. Now, why a turtle of all animals? Apart from being a symbol of longevity and wisdom, turtles were considered sacred in many old kingdoms across Asia. For instance, Shang Dynasty famously used turtle shells as oracle bones. But more importantly, the turtle acted as a medium between heaven and earth, a path through which the will of the tribes, usually demanding rain or good harvest, could be communicated to the heavens, and the message from the heavens was sent down to earth through the turtle. In the case of Karak, the answer to their prayers... came down to Turtle Peak in the form of a bowl made of solid gold wrapped in a red cloth. When people looked inside the bowl, there were six eggs. Twelve days later, the eggs hatched six boys. King Suro was the first boy to hatch from the eggs. He went on to unite the nine tribes to form Karak Kingdom. Let's hear the famous turtle song that started it all. Turtle, turtle, give us your head. If not, you'll be roasted and eaten. Now, two questions came to mind when I first came across this song as a young scholar of ancient Korean literature. A, why the head? Why not the tail or a foot? And B, why roast the poor turtle? So the first question actually has a simple answer. The mandate of the heavens. Back in the day when political weight was based on brute force to convince the superstitious tribesmen that you had a certain something that set you apart from the rest of the brutishly brawny candidates, you had to prove that you had godlike properties. The image of the turtle's head coming out of the shell was a symbol of great power and a divine oracle that a great monarch was on its way. Now for the second question, why roast the medium between heaven and earth? 
Scholars believe that turtle song took after the form of chants recited at rainmaking rituals, which often involved setting things on sacrificial fire. That's where the roasting comes in. This prayer for rain eventually was adapted by foundation myth makers in the transitional period between the era of tribes and the era of kingdoms to give the foundation myths a nice continuity. In other words, they went from praying for rain to praying for a wise monarch. According to records, King Suro ruled Karak from the year 42 to the year 199. That means even if he hatched from the egg all grown up and ready to rule, he lived to be at least 157 years old. That's probably not true. What's true, however, is that Turtle Peak or Kujibong, the very location where King Suro's egg came down from the sky, is still in Kimhe and marked by a dolmen that dates back to the 4th century. And every year in April, the city of Kimhe does a reenactment of the ritual of the nine leaders of the nine tribes praying for a wise monarch. I hope you enjoyed Kujiga. I'll introduce another foundation myth of ancient Korean dynasties next Sunday on Life in Lines. for the very first episode of David's Bookmark with David Tizard. David is a lover of magical realism in literature and a student of philosophy and history, both Western and Eastern. If you've been listening to The Bookend for a while, you'll recognize his voice. David was a regular classics panel on the Roundtable segment in previous seasons. And starting today, David will be joining us every Sunday to continue our search for hidden gems in literature and reignite your love for the books that are already sitting on your shelf. Welcome, David. Welcome. Thank you for having me, Jamie. It's great to be back and it's nice to have a new season. Mm-hmm. Well, congratulations on having a, a whole segment named after you. How do you feel about that? That's pretty cool. Um, there's a lack of fanfare, trumpets, carpets. <laughs> I was expecting, you know, some, uh, some sounds to accompany such a momentous occasion. No, but uh-huh. it, it's really cool. I'm, I'm both thrilled and honoured and I'm really looking forward to it, most importantly. Mm-hmm. And can you share with us your visions for this segment? Well, you mentioned that previously we'd done the classics on here and that was really interesting, delving into the depths of history and finding these books that have left such a mark on the world. Mm-hmm. This frees me up a little bit. Now we can go to all corners of the library and I have a big library at the moment mm-hmm. and I'm really looking forward to introducing to the readers, to the listeners as well, a whole selection of books out there that have their merits regardless of when and why they were written. Mm-hmm. Well, we look forward to discovering the books on your shelf. Thank you. <laughs> so you've brought in a nonfiction piece, One Minute to Midnight, today. Tell us about this book and why you chose it. One Minute to Midnight is a book written by Michael Dobbs, nonfiction. As you say, it was published in 2008 
and it's a political narrative history. Mm -hmm. It concerns itself with the Cuban Missile Crisis, which uh, more seasoned listeners out there will be aware of, but for those younger ones, this occurred in 1962, in October of 1962, and it was America and Russia facing off with each other at the brink of a nuclear war. Mm-hmm. I chose this book specifically, A, because it's really good. It's a really good book to read. Okay. You know, I got through this in a day or two. But secondly, I chose it because of the domestic situation, international situation that we find every time we go on the internet, we turn on the news, pick up a newspaper. These days, it seems that we're inundated with stories about nuclear war, nuclear tests, mm-hmm. um, missile deployment on the peninsula. These are words, uh, symbols and images that are filling our consciousness at the right, moment. Right. And it all seems very much as if we're on the brink of something, mm-hmm. like something momentous is coming. And I think that's very much natural human instinct, right. that we think we're at the apex of history and uh-huh. nothing like this has ever happened before. But it has. But it's not always the case, yeah. Mm-hmm. But it has happened before. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of being on the brink of something, the title One Minute to Midnight is, is pretty interesting. Let's listen to a clip of the writer talking about how he got this title. Uh, well, One Minute to Midnight, you know, it's the, uh, a reference to the doomsday clock uh, uh, invented by the Society of Atomic Scientists to dramatize how close the world is to nuclear destruction. And I think during the missile crisis became the closest we've ever been to a nuclear war. In other words, metaphorically, one minute to midnight. I think that doomsday clock now stands at about three minutes to midnight. But during the missile crisis, we were at one minute to midnight. So as someone who's living on the Korean peninsula around all this talk of nuclear tests and nuclear warheads, does it really feel like you're three minutes away from midnight? And that's the very strange thing about it, isn't it? Because no, it doesn't. Mm -hmm. There's this great disillusion with living on the peninsula that we're living in amidst a civil war, but -hmm. yet we feel safer than we would do in perhaps London or New York. And also just above us, we have this demilitarized zone, which is the most heavily militarized zone in the world. Mm -hmm. The images and the reality seem to be very disjointed at the moment. So no, it doesn't feel like I'm three minutes, two minutes, or even one minute to midnight at the moment. Yes, I think our relatives and families, friends living abroad are much more worried about this than we are. And that's probably the one big difference between the situation today and the situation in the past is the access to information and media and the way that these things are spread so quickly. Mm -hmm. So many books have been written on the Cuban Missile Crisis. What makes this one special? I think what makes this one really special is that it tells the story through the form of narrative history. And this is a genre of history that I really enjoy, and it's something that sort of got lost Mm -hmm. along the way. I'm not sure when it was, but there was a period where if you were to pick up a history book, perhaps around the 80s or 90s, they really only started dealing with empirical facts. Mm -hmm. You know, when you were at high school or places like that, you had to remember the dates and the people and just the hard cold facts. It's like that Dickens line, isn't it? Right. And it was even organized that way so you could get just the facts. Yeah. It was an attempt to remove any personal bias or color from it and just really get down to the the nitty gritty. And I think in doing that, history lost something Mm -hmm. because the greatest history has always been told by people, experienced by people and then recounted by people. Mm -hmm. So how would you characterize narrative history as different from regular history texts? Well, I could try and describe it 
One of the great exponents of narrative history was Will Durant. He was one of the first people that got me into it. And modern listeners might know of Dan Carlin's podcasts. He does a lot of this narrative history. Mm -hmm. It's where they set the scene for you. If they were talking about Caesar or JFK, they'll describe what the weather was like. They'll describe how he was feeling, what happened to him the night before. Right, right. It's really, more vivid. It's vivid and it's more descriptive, more evocative, and it really tries to put you there. So mm -hmm. you get this empathy with the people. Right, right. So I read in the preface of this book that the writer went over previously unexamined documents and transcripts mm. to get a very, very full picture of the events like the weather and, and what happened, what interrupted their conversation and so forth. And I can imagine it must have taken a great deal of writing talent to mm -hmm. go from dry documents to gripping narrative. And you said that you got through this book in, in two days. Yeah. So what did you find exciting about the narrative? The most exciting thing about this is that it's real. Mm -hmm. And like, that's the best thing about history is that, you know, you can, you can read your great Game of Thrones or you can read your fantasies, but when you're reading history, you know it's real. Mm -hmm. And you come across these almost larger-than-life military characters or people like this, and if you're curious, you can type them into your search engine online right. and you can see what they look like. Mm -hmm. The people commanding the U-boats in, in the Cuban waters and things like that, these are real people. And when you stop and think about that, they don't appear two-dimensional. They don't mm -hmm. appear shallow. That empathy is very possible to get, and then you can delve into them, find out what they look like, are they still alive? Right. That's really cool, I find. Mm -hmm. Well, I can't wait to take a closer look at this book, but let's take a short song break. What's the song? Uh, the song I've chosen, we're going to Cuba for this song. Cuba is famous for a lot of music, mm -hmm. uh, mostly Buena Vista Social Club. But this is from a different album. This is Raikuda and Manuel Galaban with Mambo Sinuendo. Welcome back to David's Bookmark on the Bookend. Let's take a look at an excerpt from the preface where the writer describes his writing style and his worldview. The early 1960s, like the first years of the new millennium, were a time of economic, political and technological upheaval. The map of the world was being redrawn as empires disappeared and dozens of new countries joined the United Nations. The United States enjoyed overwhelming strategic superiority, but American dominance bred enormous resentment. The flip side of hegemony was vulnerability as the American heartland became exposed to previously unimaginable threats from distant lands. Then, as now, the world was in the throes of a technological revolution. Planes could travel at the speed of sound, television could transmit pictures instantaneously across the oceans, a few shots could trigger a global nuclear war. The world was becoming a global village in the newly minted phrase of Marshall McLuhan. But the revolution was unfinished. Human beings possessed the ability to blow up the world, but they still used the stars for navigation. Americans and Russians were beginning to explore the cosmos, but the Soviet ambassador in Washington had to summon a messenger on a bicycle when he wanted to send a cable to Moscow. American warships could bounce messages off the moon, but it could take many hours to decipher a top-secret communication. The Cuban Missile Crisis serves as a reminder that history is full of unexpected twists and turns. Historians like to find order, logic and inevitability in events that sometimes defy coherent and logical explanation. As the Danish philosopher Søren Kierkegaard noted, 
history is lived forwards, but understood backwards. I have tried to tell this story as it was experienced at the time, forward rather than backward, preserving its cliffhanging excitement and unpredictability. I like that that quote very much by uh, Soren Kierkegaard that um, history is lived forwards but understood backwards. That's cool, isn't it? That's really nice. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it's so accurate too because time moves forward, but you don't actually get to see what was done until you look at it in hindsight. Yeah, uh, a little peek behind my wizard's curtain because I write a lot of articles and things. When I write, I have a document open, and when I come across phrases like this, uh-huh. I, you know, I write them into the document. So right. when I write my articles at later date, I pick up these quotes. Mm-hmm. Sometimes there's a really other nice one from uh, Khrushchev, the uh, Soviet president, in there where he says, "In Russia, the past is unpredictable." Right, right. <laughs> I really like that. Because how can it be unpredictable? But that's again ties in with Kierkegaard's idea mm-hmm. that because we experience it like that, we can kind of shape it to a certain extent. Right. So before we continue with our discussion, let's listen to another clip from the writer on what he would like us to take away from the book. Yeah, I think there are a lot of lessons. I mean, it's a wonderful case study of uh, presidential decision making at a time of grave national crisis. Uh, Joe Biden during the campaign was saying that uh, uh, President Obama is going to be tested just as John Kennedy was tested. He was talking about the missile crisis. And by studying the missile crisis, we see that, uh, you know, we have this image of the commander-in-chief, the president, who knows everything and uh, gets superb information. When you actually uh, study what was happening in the White House during that period, you discover that a lot of the information coming into the White House was misinformation. The president didn't know a lot. And the critical uh, question that I kept asking was not what the president knew, but what he didn't know. Because I think the real risk of war in October 1962, and perhaps from future foreign policy crises, is what the president doesn't know rather than what he does know. So he's talking about this moment of very important presidential decision-making. And I know that we no longer live in a monarchy, but it's um, cases like this that make me think that we still put too much power in the hands of one person. Mm -hmm. What do you think? Um, I disagree to a certain extent. I think these people are figureheads and they don't make a lot of the decisions. They Mm -hmm. don't have the requisite knowledge of the education, the military, the technological sectors. Therefore, they rely on the experience, the advice and the suggestions of Mm -hmm. a very powerful team around them rather than being them at the helm of the ship. Uh Uh, Another interesting rather thing that came up in the clip was that there was a lot of misinformation being fed into the White House. Mm, Yes. Do you think that Kennedy was perhaps kept in the dark on purpose? There is an element of that as you read it, and it's fascinating because it's almost like a drama that I've never seen before, a television Uh drama, political espionage. Right. Because you have these vying positions, you have the hawks and the doves, the realists and the liberals, the people that are advocating military intervention mm-hmm. and the people that are advocating peace and championing more humane aspects. Mm-hmm. And, and this is all within the same U.S. government, right? This is all within the same U.S. government. But what's great is it's also happening in the Kremlin as well. Oh, there's and it, doves and hawks in the Kremlin yeah. as well. Okay. and. That's really important, I think, to realize that this is not good versus evil. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not that black and white. There are people on both sides. And it's also happening in Cuba. 
So we should remember that this is a, a triangle of events happening in all three places. Mm -hmm. So when we read history books, we often forget that the people who, who made these important decisions with the help of their advisors um, that actually ended up destroying or saving millions of lives were just regular people. So what can you tell us about Khrushchev and Kennedy? Um, Khrushchev, the Soviet leader, was of peasant Ukrainian stock. Mm -hmm. And that's very interesting that Soviet leaders, Stalin was from Georgia and Khrushchev was from the Ukraine. Uh, Khrushchev was often mocked in the Kremlin for his bucolic phrases. Uh -huh. He spoke like a peasant. He didn't use the Queen's English uh, well-spoken language uh -huh. he would often mix his metaphors be very abrasive aggressive and sometimes vulgar right. and this shocked a lot of people however he had this wonderful humane side he talked about the knot of war and he tried telling kennedy that we're pulling this knot between us ever mm -hmm. tighter mm -hmm. and we're going to get to the stage where soon we won't be able to unravel this knot even right. if we want to that's actually a really beautiful metaphor yeah, I've, it's uh -huh. a nice one, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, this it is. is one of the it ones is. that's gone on my uh, notepad. But that, that was uh -huh. from him, and it, it's so true. It's so true. So let's close with a look at another passage from One Minute to Midnight. Can you tell us where it's from? I can. This is from the afterword, and the book really does end on a positive note. Uh, Dobbs really emphasizes the, the humane nature of people, and mm -hmm. that's what it is that changes the world. It's not security dilemmas, it's not big military complexes, but people have the ability to make the world a better place if they want. Right. Writing about the past, Arthur Schlesinger observed, is a way of writing about the present. We reinterpret history through the prism of present-day events and controversies. When we look back on those 13 tumultuous days in October 1962, we view them with the knowledge of everything that has happened since. Vietnam, the end of the Cold War, the demise of the Soviet Union, 9-11, the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. Future historians will examine the missile crisis from still different vantage points. Consider the question of winners and losers. In the immediate aftermath of the crisis, most people, certainly most Americans, would probably have singled Kennedy out as the big winner. He achieved his basic objective, the removal of Soviet missiles from Cuba without plunging the world into a catastrophic war. The big loser, at least in his own mind, was Fidel Castro. His views had counted for little. He learned of Khrushchev's decision to withdraw the missiles over the radio and was so furious that he smashed a mirror. Cuba was merely a pawn in the superpower confrontation. And yet, in a perverse way, the missile crisis guaranteed Castro's hold on power in Cuba for more than four decades. Little over a year after his greatest foreign policy triumph, Kennedy was dead, murdered by a fair play for Cuba activist. A year later, Khrushchev was gone too, in part because of his Cuban adventure. Castro was the great survivor. As the years went by, it became clear that Kennedy's missile crisis victory had produced many unintended consequences. So even in this excerpt, the the idea that history is understood backwards rings so true. Yeah, and that, that comes in again, also the idea of winners and losers and what may happen in the future we might we can't predict mm -hmm. just as these unintended consequences come to us, you know it's it's very hard to know what the future may bring. Yes, so. The decisions that we make today, we don't know the consequences of it. And so all we can do today is to make the best informed decision possible. And we can get a lot of that information correct, Jamie, by looking at the past. Because mm -hmm. what seems so striking and new and pivotal today has been very recent in our own history. Right, right.
Well, David, thank you so much for joining me today. Enjoy your Sunday, and I'll see you next week. I'll see you next week. Thank you. Bye.